from Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvigate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvigate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvigate.com and check out our social media pages. Hi everyone, I'm your host Christy Paredes and in today's episode we're going to speak to Professor Suiki about torts. Professor, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. So my name is Professor Nadia Sawicki. I am the co-director of the Beasley Institute for Health Law and Policy here at Loyola. And among other courses, I teach torts. Thank you. Okay, so starting off with the basics, what is a tort? So a tort is essentially a civil wrong, doing something that causes harm to another person, either causing harm to them physically, causing harm to their property, causing emotional, reputational, dignitary harm, causing economic harm. Um, And tort law is the body of law that explains when someone is legally responsible for compensating a person who's been harmed in that way. Thank you. And can you please give us a general overview of your course? Sure. Uh, So we begin the semester in tort law with usually about four or five weeks focusing on intentional torts, uh, which are the ones that I think are easiest for students to access and understand. These are things like A punches B in the face, right? Or A uh, breaks B's window. Um, But there's a lot of kind of complicated nuance and elements to those intentional torts. Uh, The bulk of the semester we spend on negligence, which applies in a wide variety of circumstances. So any situation that you can imagine where an actor failed to take reasonable care and someone was harmed as a result. We spend about one week at the end of the semester looking at strict liability torts, uh, which is a very narrow category of situations where a person might be liable even if they did everything right. And then we finish up by talking about defenses to those torts and damages and how we calculate damages, um, how statutory developments in tort reform have impacted the real life litigation process. And I see how that can be kind of intimidating for someone who doesn't have a background in law. For those students, do you have any suggestions on how they can prepare for your class? I was a first-generation law student myself, so that question really resonates with me. I had no idea what I was getting myself into or how to prepare. I think one thing that law students very quickly realize is that sometimes the ways that they prepared and the ways that they studied that were effective for them as undergraduates just aren't going to be effective in law school. And so there's a transitional period where folks have to figure out, okay, this is a new system of learning and a new kind of material, and I'm going to need to develop new strategies to adjust to that. So it's always a learning curve. And in that respect, it is hard to give guidance on how to prepare. Obviously, you want to do all the assigned readings and 
figure out as much as you can what is important about those. Um, I recommend that students as early as possible get uh, either a template or some guidance from their tutors on briefing cases, because that is helpful both in really understanding the cases and also being able to give responses when you're called on the spot in class. Um, the other thing I would note when students are preparing for class and reviewing the material is don't just focus on the cases. Every casebook has notes, comments, problems, questions, and those are the pieces that get a little more nuanced. And when we have conversations in class, I'm not just going to ask, what did this court say and why? I'm also going to ask, okay, how would you apply that rule to a new situation? And the notes and the problems in the casebook can give you sort of a heads up of what are other situations that might arise in which we would be thinking about the same themes. So as much as you're able to think through the material in advance of class and try to understand it yourself, as opposed to showing up in class and just hoping that it'll be explained to you in a way you understand, I think that's the best approach to take. Thank you. I mean, and honestly, this is exactly why I'm doing this series, because these are all things that I wish I knew when I started law school. So I really appreciate you giving this advice to our listeners. So we've spoken about how to prepare for class and what to expect. I would like to speak a little bit more about what actually happens in class. I think one of the things that we tend to see a lot on TV is you know, reenactments of like the dreaded cold call. So what is it exactly that you look for in an answer when you cold call on a student? Um, I look for two things. First, have they read the material and absorbed it? So if I'm asking basic information about procedural history, so in other words, we're reading a case. How did this case get here, right? What happened? Did it go to trial? Did a jury do something? Did a judge... Um, dismiss some sort of emotion. Now we're on appeal. How did we get here? Um, and making sure that students have read the cases in such a way that they can answer those basic fundamental questions about what's going on here. And then the second piece is going a little bit further. So, okay, you've read the case, you understand the basic elements, you can tell me the facts, you can extract the rule of the case, let me put a twist on it. What happens then? So being prepared, not just with a description of what you've read, but also having given some thought to what that means in the bigger picture and how it might change if circumstances were different. And as the semester progresses, how do you suggest students test their comprehension to make sure that they're prepared for the final? My best piece of advice there is to take advantage of every opportunity that you have to test yourself, to test out your skills, to test out the material. At Loyola, one of the great things I think compared to other law schools is that most first year professors try and provide a lot of opportunities for students to practice and self-assess throughout the semester. So for example, in my torts class, I have weekly quizzes that 
do not count towards the final grade. You get credit as long as you complete the quiz. I don't care how well you did or how poorly you did, but that is an opportunity for students to assess their own understanding and see, okay, I got this question wrong, why? Um, I and other faculty also provide opportunities for ungraded written assignments throughout the semester. So here is a hypothetical, write out an answer to that and you'll get feedback on that from me, from your tutors, et cetera. The more experience students have practicing how to put those analytical and writing skills out there into the world, the better off they are gonna be for the final exam. When I went to law school, we did not have practice midterms. We did not have practice assignments. We did not have quizzes. Literally the first time I had an opportunity to write an answer out in response to an exam style question was on the final exam. And now as an educator, I think that's a terrible way of first of all, assessing student knowledge and also it, doesn't contribute to learning, right? You're just assessing without having any steps in the process throughout the semester to give students opportunities to improve. So one of the things that I try and do in my first year classes is offer those opportunities. And I understand how busy first year students are. I understand how much they have on their plates. Um, but if there's one thing I'd emphasize, it's that the time and energy that you spend actually doing the hard work of taking what makes sense to you in your head and putting it on paper, that is time really, really well spent in preparation for the final exam. Speaking of time, do you have any advice on how students can improve their time management skills? Uh, time management. <laughs> I don't know. I could use some advice on that as well, to be quite honest. <laughs> Um, again, as I said earlier, because this environment and the learning styles here are so different than most students experienced in undergrads, I think also people's time management skills may have to change. And you just have to play with that and see what works for you. The one thing that I do want to emphasize while I have an audience with whoever it is that is listening to this is to remember to make time for yourself. You've got to fill up your own bucket first. If you are not sleeping well, if you are you know, missing meals, if you really love running but haven't been outside in three weeks, if you love chatting on the phone with your best friend but every time she calls you, you turn her away and say, oh no, I don't have time, that is not good for you. You've got to make sure that your own needs are taken care of, that your soul is taken care of. And again, taking that time away from work, you may think, well, oh my gosh, I'm if I go see this movie that I'm really excited about, I'm losing two hours of study time. But also you have to think about what are you gaining in terms of feeling like you're doing things that make you a, a real functioning, fulfilled human being and not just being kind of a cog in the wheel of studying, studying, studying. So as, as hard as it may be, and believe me, I struggle with this as well, um, try to make sure that as you are planning your schedule, as you're figuring out what works for you in terms of studying, working, et cetera, 
you reserve room to take care of your own needs. Aw, that was beautiful. Do as I say, not as I do, because I have this problem absolutely as well. Same. But over yeah. time, it gets a little bit easier to remind yourself, you know, I am not my best self when I've only gotten six hours of sleep. You know, I am not my best self when I have eaten pizza for dinner every night because I can't be bothered to cook, right? How do I put myself in a situation that I can do my best work, be most productive, be a good member of society, etc. And now that you're a professor, what do you wish you would have known as a student? Well, first, the, the big picture issue that I just mentioned, I wish someone had really told me that you have to pay attention to your own meet, needs in order to be able to do your best work. That's one thing. Um, another thing I, well, I wish I knew it. I'm not sure if it would have helped necessarily in the environment that I was in, but it's something that Loyola students should absolutely take into account um, is to not be afraid to ask for help. One of the things that is most fulfilling to me teaching here at Loyola is knowing that the faculty, the staff, the administrators all want students to succeed. I tell my first year students, it is literally my job to help you succeed. And if you are struggling, whether it is with you know personal struggles or health issues, or you just can't get the material or something as simple as, man, I can't hear you in the back of the class, let me know because I want to make sure that you've got the tools that you need to succeed. And law students tend to be a type A perfectionistic, do it yourself, I've done it all and I can keep doing it on my own group of people. But at Loyola and I think at a lot of other law schools these days, the environment is set up to recognize the fact that you can't do everything on your own and that sometimes you need help. You know, I've had students who for legitimate medical reasons needed exam accommodations but didn't seek them out because they didn't want people to think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm taking the side route, I'm trying to make it easier for myself. That's not helping you, that is not helping anyone. My husband recently told me, and I'm sure this was something he read on the internet, but um, he said, asking for help is a sign of trust. And obviously not every law school is going to have the same environment, but I would hope that students and people in general are in environments where they have enough trust in the people that they're working with that they can say, hey, I'm really struggling, right? It's not an admission of weakness. It is a recognition that humans are flawed and imperfect and have a million different things going on and nobody can keep it together 100% of the time. So yes, I wish I someone had told me, ask for help if you need it. No one will think less of you and it is a sign that you kind of trust and respect the people that you are working with and trust that they have your best interests at heart. And one last question. What do you hope students take away from your course? 
So I tell my tort students that I have really three goals in the class. One is to make sure they are prepared with the substantive, hard, black letter law knowledge that they need to pass the bar, right? If you come to law school and you don't have those basic skills and you can't pass the bar, you can't achieve your goals. So that is priority number one. The other two goals that I have in my class, um, first is to give students an opportunity to develop their skills, whether it's writing skills or interview skills or analytical skills, not just knowing the rules, but being able to apply them in practice. And then the third piece that's really important to me is making sure that students understand how the law got to where it is today and also what direction it's potentially moving in. Um, as a law student, I'm sure you have taken classes and learned rules that you think that doesn't make any sense. That is not consistent with societal norms. That is not consistent with my personal beliefs. And one of the great things about law is that it can change over time. Sure, it takes a long time, but there are changes going forward. And so to offer just one example, um, when we talk in my torts class about the defense of consent, right? I punched you in the face, but uh, I shouldn't be at fault for it because you consented. You've said, so wait, please punch me in the face. Um, so we've got standard rules that have been around for many, many years about how we determine whether someone has consented in such a way that a defendant should be relieved of liability. Um, but currently, there are really active conversations going on in the legal community about whether those standardized traditional consent rules are appropriate in the context of sexual contact. So I am a member of the American Law Institute, which is an organization that publishes the restatements, which are essentially um, descriptions of what judges say about a certain topic, right? And so the restatements essentially restate the law. They say, Here, here's the basic rule that most judges are applying, and here's some information about nuances on those rules. And the last version of the torts restatement, the second restatement, came out in 1965. Right? We are currently in the process of updating everything into the third restatement. And one of the new things that is being included in the new restatement in recognition of changes in the law is a new section talking about how courts deal with consent when we have sexual contact, sexual assault cases, because the rules that courts actually apply in those cases tend to be a little bit different, right? And the American Law Institute is trying to communicate that and say, all right, you've got these regular consent rules, but here's where the law is going in this one narrow category of cases. So that was a very long-winded answer to your question, but the, the, the heart of it is really, uh, I hope that students understand what the law is, how to apply it, how we got where we are today, and where we might be going in the future. Great. Thank you, Professor Sawicki. That's all from us here at The Podvigate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. 
If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our editors-in-chief are Christy Paredes and Marissa Polowitz. Our associate editors are Neka Ugu, Marcus McNeil, Andy Vandenbush, and Casey Callahan. Special thanks to Professor John Dane and Dean Stephen Russian for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.